Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18, seeing through the lens of wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, it says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God for who can make straight what he has made crooked in the day of prosperity. Be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. I have seen everything in my days of vanity There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other. For he who fears God will escape them all. The last time we got together, I reminded you that we've reached the halfway point in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're a little past the the, the halfway point and we're going to pick up the pace just a little bit. In chapter seven, Solomon will examine the benefits of godly wisdom. And so far, we've seen in chapter seven that wisdom makes life better in verses one through ten. And now Solomon suggests that wisdom makes life balanced in verses 11 through 18. And the truth is, we all face hard choices in life. The reality is that most of us will not get through life without having to make hard choices about where to go and what to do. Decision making can be foolish and reckless unless we're willing to walk with the Lord and include him in the decision making process. And that's part of the point of this particular passage of Scripture and in Solomon's search for meaning. The reality is you can always include God or exclude God from the process of making decisions. We rarely see the whole picture. We rarely anticipate the consequences because we are who we are. And because we find ourselves in the circumstance we find ourselves in, we need the wisdom of God. We need the insight of God because none of us are wise enough to know what tomorrow holds. And so we need his grace and we need his mercy and we need his insight. So why not invite God's perspective as you make difficult choices? And so Solomon begins by once again, the issue of balancing wealth. In verse 11, he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. In our country right now, the politicians We're not too long ago debating on whether or not our wealth can be legally passed on to our progeny. The government is asking and answering the question, 
how much of your wealth should you be able to keep and how much should they be able to legally confiscate? They call it the death tax. Someone foolishly even made the statement, why should someone be rich just because their mother or their father were rich? Why should they get money? And again, it, it, it displays a mentality and the mentality is where does wealth come from? From the government's perspective, they believe it comes from them. But from the Bible's perspective, it comes from the Lord. Fathers and mothers in the ancient world could pass on wealth, but could they pass on wisdom? No. We can teach our children and we can hope that they embrace wisdom. And you've got to understand something when when it talks about wisdom is good with an inheritance in the land of Israel. The ancient Jews were given an inheritance. You'll remember that the land belonged to the Lord and the people were to be the stewards of the land. In other words, remember, it passed from tribe to tribe, from family to to family, and so the family was supposed to be a steward of the things that were entrusted to them. The land was not supposed to be simply passed on for no good reason, but the reality is that God had a plan and a purpose and even the passing of an inheritance. So here, when it says wisdom is good with an inheritance, the Hebrew phrase in the original language seems to say and seems to mean wisdom is as good as an inheritance. You may have come from a family where your grandfather or your father passed on things to you. But Solomon is making the statement wisdom is as good as an inheritance. You know, you can inherit lands or goods or money. But if you have wisdom, it's just as good. That's the whole point. Clearly, wealth is more desirable than poverty. But the Bible doesn't see poverty as some sort of inherent blessing. But if wealth includes wisdom, the point that is being made is that it can avert disaster in the day of problems. But the day of disaster or the day of adversity Wealth may help, but it won't be the only thing that sustains you. So if wisdom is being compared to an inheritance, it's something to be greatly desired. So what I want to do just for a moment as we once again look at this issue of wisdom is to ask and answer the question, what is wisdom? Now, the common definition of wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. Wisdom is what you do with knowledge. But I want to go one step further and suggest to you that wisdom isn't just simply the application of knowledge. We might go so far as to say that wisdom is the God-given ability to see life objectively and then to handle life with stability. I'm going to repeat that. Wisdom is the God-given ability to see life objectively and then to handle life with stability. When God's wisdom is at work, there are things that begin to happen. Objectivity, stability, insight, discernment, right judgment, 
all of these things like a cascading effect begins to take place when you say, hey, you know what? I want God's mind and I want God's heart in this particular subject. So he goes from verse 11 to verse 12 for wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. This particular passage is difficult to translate from the original language. Some Hebrew scholars have suggested it should be translated. To be in the shadow of wisdom is like being in the shadow of silver. Now, the reason why I think that this is what it means is because this is literally what it says in verse 11. When you came to the end of the passage and profitable to those who see the sun, it's a euphemism for being alive. Obviously, dead people don't see the sun. Live people do see the sun. But when you're looking at the sun, the sun shines and it casts a shadow on things that it shines upon. And obviously the sun shines on all kinds of different things. But the thing that is most likely to cast a shadow is something that has substance. So when it says to be in the shadow of wisdom is like being in the shadow of silver and knowledge is an advantage. Wisdom keeps the life of him who has it. Here's the idea. When you are in the shadow of silver, you're under the protective power of wealth. That's the point that he's making. Like riches, knowledge and wisdom have the power to protect. Now, I want you to think this through. What does money do? It protects you in the day of poverty. But the point that Solomon is making, like riches, knowledge and wisdom have the power to protect. We would be making a mistake if we said the emphasis here is on wealth protecting you from poverty. Rather, the emphasis is on knowledge and wisdom protecting you from adversity. That's the point. And so here the preachers already pointed out that a good reputation is better than fine perfume in verse one. The day of death is better than the day of birth and at the end of verse one funerals are better than fiestas in verse two sorrow is better than laughter in verses three and four criticism from a wise man is better than praise from a fool in verses five through six finishing is better than starting in verse eight patience is better than pride at the end of verse eight and now wisdom is better than wealth in verses 11 and 12. And so that's part of the point that he's making. At the end of the chapter, the preacher is going to point out the bitter in verse 26. Remember, and I find more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters or chains. He who pleases God shall escape from her. And so he, he's going to talk about the bitter, but he's also going to talk about the bottom line. What does all of this mean? What is crooked cannot be made straight in verse 13. Enjoy today because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Verse 14. And you can be too good or too wise in verses 15 
through 18. And so Solomon begins with believing in providence in verse 13. Look what it says. Consider the work of God for who can make straight what he has made crooked. What Solomon does. Remember, he is a king. Remember, he's a preacher. Remember, he's a philanthropist. But remember, he's a scientist. Solomon spent almost all of his life looking around. Now, I know that some of you spend a lot of time looking around. You look up, you look down, you look all around. You see the stars in the heaven and you like astronomy. You look down at the rocks on the ground and you think geology is the bomb. You look at living animals and you gravitate towards biology. And some of you, for reasons that I can't comprehend, love numbers. When the preacher says, consider the work of God, what he is doing is he's talking about all of reality and all that God does. And when he says, for who can make straight what he has made crooked, he begins to remind us that some things are straight and some things are crooked. Everything is subject to God's will. Everything is subordinate to God's providence. Some people believe that the interactions of people in this universe are simply the product of blind chance or coinkydink or coincidences. Normal people call it. But the reality is that the Bible says that God is orchestrating, he's planning and he's purposing. You'll remember in the New Testament, it says, for God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. And sometimes we just simply don't believe that that's true. But it is true. All things are subject to God's will. And so here's the big question that Solomon is asking, and he's asking you to consider asking and to contemplate. If God is, if everything is subject to God's will, does that mean that bad things, adverse things, difficult things, trials and tribulations, are those also subject to God's will? In other words, affliction often appears as a crooked thing or a bent thing. The Living Bible says, enjoy prosperity whenever you can. And when hard times strike, realize that God gives one as well as the other. We all have our crooked days. We all have our bent moments. For some of us, the adversity or the bent day is the way we look or our relatives or our economic circumstances or our health. In other words, there's something there's something not quite straight. There's something just a little bit twisted. There's something a little bit wrong. And we wonder whether or not these are things that are so bent that there is no way of straightening them out. Someone said, hey, look, you can't be blamed for the face that you were born with. But you can be blamed for the face that you have after 50. 
Genetics determines the face that you have before 50, but guess what? The way you live is going to pretty much determine the way you look like after 50. There are things that are so bent that we rarely think of any way of straightening them out. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? We rarely think of bent things as being blessings, though. We rarely think of crooked things as being crucibles of grace. But I suspect that each and every one of you have something in your life that you're not quite happy with. That is just a little bit twisted that you wish wasn't twisted. And and again, in Romans 8.20, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The reality is we live in a broken world. We live in a bent world. We live in a crooked world. And it will remain broken and bent and crooked until the day that God... Make straight everything that is crooked. That he levels everything that was lifted up. And so he's going to talk about balancing adversity and prosperity in verse 14. Look what it says. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. So that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Do you understand what Solomon is saying? He's considering the circumstances of our life. And he's saying, hey, everybody wants prosperity. But few people want adversity. But Solomon is making a suggestion. Not just a suggestion, but an outright claim that prosperity and adversity both have value. Both are subject to God's will. Both are subject to God's providence. Prosperity can lead to joy. But adversity can sometimes draw us to life's realities and sometimes lead us to a place of submission and humility and confidence in God as we say, look, God, you are in control and I am not in control. You are the Lord of heaven and earth and you get to be in charge of being the sovereign Lord of the universe. And when life swings one way or the other, We're not dependent on our own meager resources or our own limited insights. We are not dependent on guesswork. We are dependent on the sovereignty and the majesty and the goodness and the grace and the mercy of a real God who really exists. This is why Paul could write in Philippians chapter 4 verse 12, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. You know what is the right question when you hear that passage? The right question you should ask is how did you learn that, Paul? How did you learn to be abased and how did you learn to abound? How did you discover everywhere and in all things to be full or to be hungry or to abound or to suffer need? How did you do that? And you know what his answer is? Because my sufficiency is in Christ. 
Remember, I have everything that pertains to life and godliness and the knowledge of Jesus. If Jesus wants me to be full, I'm willing to be full. And if Jesus is willing for me to skip a meal, I will skip a meal. And if Jesus wants me to have this, I'll have it. And if Jesus doesn't want me to have it, I won't have it. I am willing to have whatever he wants me to have. And I'm willing to not have whatever he doesn't want me to have. I'm willing to go and be and discover and embrace and accept and reject whatever he has for me. Well, what if he wants you in prison? Then I'll go to prison. What if he wants me to be stoned? And I'm not talking about medical marijuana. What if he wants me to suffer affliction? Then he knows that it's a momentary affliction. Clearly, Paul wouldn't have been the first person to say, hey, you know how I want to spend the rest of my life in a Roman jail. But God is going to use the time out in order for him to write a little epistle called Philemon. He's going to use the time to write first Timothy and second Timothy. Could you imagine if we had magic powers and and we could bring Paul to us and all of a sudden Paul is here at the pulpit and he goes, hey, tell me how the ministry went. Tell me how the church in Philippi is going. It's ruins, Paul. Hey, well, what about the church that I planted in Asia Minor? What about the church in Ephesus? It's ruined, Paul. Well, what about all of the little churches that I planted Corinth? It's in ruins, Paul. What about the church in Rome? You wouldn't recognize it, Paul. Well, what do you remember? The letters you wrote from jail. The epistle that you wrote uh, called Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. The notes of encouragement that you spent in moments of absolute pain and suffering and desperation. Your legacy is a living legacy. Warren Wiersbe writes, God balances our lives by giving us enough blessings to keep us happy and enough burdens to keep us humble. If all we had were blessings in our hands, we would fall right over. So the Lord balances the blessings in our hands with the burdens on our backs. That helps us to keep us steady as we yield to him. He can even turn the burden into blessing. Isn't that good? You know, this week I was reading a story about a wise old Chinese woodcutter who lived near the troubled Mongolian border. And one day his favorite horse, a beautiful white mare, jumped the fence and was seized on the other side of the Mongolian territory by his enemies. And the man's friends came to comfort him and they said, oh, we are so sorry to hear about your beautiful horse. This is bad news. And the woodcutter said. How do you know this is bad news? It might be good news. And a week later, the man looked out his window to see the mare returning at at an incredible speed. And beside her was a beautiful stallion. And he put both horses in the corral and his friends came over to admire the new horse. And they said, wow, beautiful horse. This is good news. And the woodcutter said, How do you know it's good news? It might be bad news. 
And a week later, the woodcutter's only son tried to ride the beautiful new stallion. He was thrown off the horse and he broke his leg. And so the friends came back and said, we are so sorry to hear about your son. This is really bad news about his broken leg. And he said, how do you know it's bad news? It might be good news. And then a war broke out between China and Mongolia. And a man came to the village and he required all of the young men who were able to fight to go and fight against China's enemy. And they engaged in a battle from that village and all of the young people were killed in the village except this woodcutter son who had broken his leg. The woodcutter told his friend what you thought was bad news was good news and what you thought was good news was bad news. That is sort of what he's saying here. You might think that the tragedy that you call a tragedy is something that has been brought to you to punish you or to hurt you or to limit you. So what does wisdom provide? Perspective. And what else does wisdom provide? Protection. Wisdom gives us the necessary perspective so that we won't be discouraged when times are difficult or arrogant when things are going well. Few people have the spiritual maturity to handle prosperity. And since prosperity sometimes does more damage than adversity, you may not believe this, but God knows what's best for you. Do you remember Job's wife? She said, I think I have a good idea for you. I think you should curse God and die. And Job's response was, what? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive trouble? And the diagnosis comes. Why do I have cancer? Well, why wouldn't you? Why has this happened to my son? Why wouldn't it? Someone's son is hurt. Someone's son is injured. Someone's son or daughter is, ex, is, is going through a difficult time. It was Job who said, it is the Lord who gives and it is the Lord who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We seem to be given enough prosperity and adversity to keep us from thinking that we know everything, but also to fill us with the false illusion that we are in charge and that we can manage our own lives. And so here's the invitation that the Lord Jesus Christ extends to you. I'm willing to be the Lord of your life. I'm willing to take control and be in charge and decide what's best for you. At the end of verse 14, it says. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. It's Solomon's way of saying you aren't bright enough. You aren't smart enough. You aren't knowledgeable enough to be able to Consider all of the consequences that are going to happen to you. But God is. 
And then he talks about beware of brooding over righteousness and sin. Look what it says in verse 15. I have seen everything in my days of vanity or emptiness or meaninglessness. I've seen everything. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Solomon sees what we all see and what everyone seems to complain about. Hey, why do good? Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do wicked people seem to get away with their wickedness? Part of the point that Solomon is making is that extreme behaviors are by and large undesirable. And part of the point that he's going to make is that wisdom, the life of wisdom, requires balance. And let's talk about that for just a moment. What does that mean? Are we talking about balance in the Christian life? Are we talking about balance between righteousness and holiness and wickedness? I don't think that that's the balance that he's talking about. He's talking about the reality of living a life of honor and integrity before the Lord, but not self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. So when people ask the question, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? We could just as easily say, why do the wicked suffer and the righteous prosper? Because guess what? It would make sense to us that the wicked would suffer and the righteous and prosper. But is that always true? That's not always true either. Do good people die young and do wicked people live to a ripe old age? The answer is yes. But is it possible that sometimes the righteous do live a very long life? And the wicked do die dramatically and tragically and prematurely. Didn't God say that people who are obedient to God's word have every reason to expect a full, rich life? That's what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Remember the Lord speaking to the children of Israel. He says, look, when you come into the land, look, here's the deal. If you'll do what I ask you to do, things are going to go really well for you. And if you don't do what I ask you to do, things aren't going to go so well. By the way, were they obedient or disobedient? Disobedient. Did things go well for them or bad for them? Bad for them. Well, doesn't the Bible say that the disobedient will perish? That's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Well, does this mean that the Bible's false and at best contradictory? How am I supposed to make sense of what the Bible is saying? Well, clearly God did promise to bless Israel in the land if she kept God's promise and she obeyed God's commands. And Jesus equates riches with poverty of spirit and humility in Matthew 5 and 3. In other words, what human beings often consider poverty and wealth are different from God's perspective, especially if he lavishes upon you generosity of heart and a willingness to know and love and honor and serve him and obey him. The foolish and the wicked may only seem to prosper, but here's the point that Solomon is making. That's because you don't have the long view. 
That's because you're only looking at this particular moment in time and space, and you're unwilling to consider the beginning as well as the end. Because remember what the Bible says, God is not mocked what a person sows, that also he will reap over and over and over again. The psalmist wrote, they have their reward. If you only want something pleasurable, if you only want something temporary, if you only want something acceptable to the world, you may get exactly what you want. You might be like Solomon or like Alexander the Great. Solomon comes into a world where he has everything that he could possibly want. Alexander the Great conquers the known world. When he runs out of worlds to conquer, he has vast hordes of gold and silver. He has everything that a person could possibly want. But what he wants is more and more and more. No wonder Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? But Solomon and Solomon's son challenge us and remind us that it's vanity to exchange that which is temporary for that which is eternal, including God's perspective in your decision making process doesn't make the problems go away, but it makes them manageable and understandable. The preacher knows that he can't make life's problems disappear. The preacher also knows that he can't necessarily resolve every inconsistency and anomaly. But he comes to the decided conclusion that there's a sovereign God, a good God, a loving God, a gracious God, a kind God, but also a just God who is going to resolve every difference. For some, it seems trite, even cliche, to say that Jesus is the answer. J. Vernon McGee used to say, my friend, Jesus isn't always the answer. It depends on what the question is. If the question is, is there hope? Jesus is the answer. Is there forgiveness? Jesus is the answer. Is there reconciliation to God? Jesus is the answer. Is there a hell that we can avoid and a heaven that we can embrace because there's a real Jesus who lived and died and who rose from the dead? Yes, Jesus is the answer. But if the question is. How can I go to heaven and still live like hell? If the question is. How bad can I be? And still have the opportunity to go to heaven. How do we exercise just the right amount of righteousness or just the right amount of wisdom? How do we do it in any given situation? Look at verse 16. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, you read that passage. And by the way, liberal scholars love this passage. They look at it. Oh, do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Look, all things in moderation. I saw a commercial on TV. It was the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas that advertises just the right amount of wrong. The, the advertisement is, you know, you've got kittens and puppies 
And then some wicked harlot shows up on the scene and that's their motto. Just the right amount of wrong. Is that what verse 16? Should this be the cosmopolitan scriptural choice? Do not be overly righteous. Do not be overly wise. I'm going to suggest something to you that this is where actually having some understanding of Bible scholarship becomes very, very helpful. The verbs in verse 16 in the Hebrew language are what's known as reflexive. That means they 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 go back on the person who is making the statement. And so the way that the passage I suspect should be translated and should be meant is don't claim to be righteous and don't claim to be wise. Solomon is warning against self-righteousness. He's warning against self-preoccupation and pride. In verse 17, do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die? The word translated overly can also mean greatly wicked. Do not be greatly wicked. Here's what the preacher recognizes. Wickedness is a fact. It's a fact of human experience. He's not recommending or encouraging you to allow just a little bit of wickedness in your life, you know, just to make life livable. That's not what he's saying. The right path means a path between two extremes, shunning self-righteousness, but not allowing one's native wickedness to run riot over your life. Now, here's the way I want you to think about it. The Bible certainly says that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Right. So what does this mean? What he's basically saying is we're all wicked. (laughs) But are you as wicked as you could be? I hope not. I hope not. I I hope that there that there's a limit. There's a line that you're saying, even I can't cross that line. Now, what he's basically doing is he's talking about the person who gives in to every temptation, who embraces every wickedness. The person who gives in to every temptation and embraces every wickedness almost certainly runs the risk of a premature death. That's the point that he's making. There's no such thing as kind of holy. There's no such thing as kind of wicked. You are holy or you are wicked. Now, you might think, well, how can I be holy? Remember, the Bible says that we're chosen and adopted and accepted in the beloved, according to the book of Ephesians. The Bible says you are accepted in Christ. Paul writes, you are sufficient in him. It was David Jeremiah who said, sort of holy is the way to sort of hell. Partial obedience remains disobedience. And so in verse 18, it says, it is good that you grasp this. 
and also do not remove your hand from the other for he who fears God will escape them all. The preachers contrasting two kinds of dangers. The righteous person must see clearly and walk before the Lord, motivated by a holy reverence towards God. This is the person who fears the Lord. And by the way, that's not something you hear a whole lot from the pulpit. Not so many people preach on this particular subject. The expression for he who fears God will escape them all here. All means both. It means both extremes that he's talking about. In other words, self-righteousness and gross immorality. So instead of asking the question, how good do I have to be in order for me to be good? Or how wicked can I get away with and still be considered good? And the Bible's answer is, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. The Bible's answer is, you have to be perfect in order to be accepted by God. Well, that leaves me out. How many perfect people were there? One. The Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have to be perfect in order to be accepted by God, and if Jesus is the only perfect person, what you're saying is that in order for me to be accepted, I have to be accepted in Jesus. That's exactly what I'm saying. So how many people are accepted in Jesus? To all who receive him, to them he gave the right to be children of God. Reverence for God is the beginning of wisdom for he who fears God will escape them all. In Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs nine ten: the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 30, Paul writes, but of him. You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, it says in First Corinthians one thirty. You are in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, it is Jesus who became for us. The wisdom from God and righteousness. You want to be wise? It begins when you're in Christ. You want to be accepted, sanctified, redeemed? It's in Christ. We don't manufacture some sort of self-righteousness. We don't manufacture wisdom. We don't manufacture sanctification. We don't make up our own plan of salvation. God does it in Christ. Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is righteousness. Jesus is sanctification. 
And all who forsake their sin and all who forsake their unbelief and all who embrace Jesus Christ. Experience what it means to have wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. You see. Wisdom allows us to see things in their true perspective and from with true significance. You know, it's wonderful about getting old. (laughs) You see things all brand new all over again. You know, it's wonderful raising kids, but it's I know it sounds horrible, but it's even more wonderful raising grandchildren. You see them write and you see them draw and a child's picture is notable for its lack of perspective and its lack of depth and its lack of detail. You know, a child will just draw a little stick figure. A good artist can portray depth and distance on the surface of a canvas. A child sees only a little way. And at best, only superficially. Paul wrote. When I was a child, I talked like a child and I acted like a child and I did childish things. But when I became a man, I put off childish things. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom will give you depth of understanding and perspective and protection. That's the point. That the preacher is making. That's why wisdom is superior to wealth. For the person who leaves Jesus out of their life. For the person who decides to walk. In this world. Apart from Jesus. Absent Jesus. Disconnected from Jesus. Almost certainly will begin to process adversity as discouragement and depression. The person who leaves Jesus out of their life, who sees themselves just simply a victim of circumstance or a victim of trial or a victim of bad luck or a victim of the economy or a victim of this or a victim of that. They cease to believe that God exists or God cares. And so every minor setback becomes a major setback. And what should have been good news becomes bad news. God will bring prosperity, Solomon says. Enjoy it. God will allow adversity grow from it. Will you trust him? Will you trust him in the day of prosperity? And will you trust him in the day of adversity? You know, really, the outcome is going to be in direct proportion to your connection to Christ or your disconnection from Jesus. Stay connected. I wish I could say to you that every moment is going to be a prosperous moment in the new year. Could there be some adversity? 
Could there be some setback? Could there be some trials? Who are you going to trust? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will trust not our own wisdom, but your wisdom. Lord, we pray that you will give us the necessary perspective and protection. Lord, we pray that we would be wise. And Lord, we understand that wisdom isn't just simply the application of knowledge. Lord, we pray that we would be willing to see you at work. Lord, we pray that we would be able to see life objectively and handle it with stability, knowing that our great God and Savior is on the throne. That there is a Jesus who is willing and working, who's causing all things to work together for the good for those who love him. Lord, we admit that we don't always see clearly and we don't always have the proper perspective and we don't always embrace the proper protection. But Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts and our minds and our confidence. Like Paul, Lord, we pray that we would find our sufficiency in you. That like Paul, we could say, I've considered everything lost for the excellency of of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, Lord, we pray, we pray that we would learn from Solomon's mistakes. (laughs) And that we would embrace godly wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.